LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. My name's Greg Moffat and today we are speaking with Ross Ashcroft director of a brand new documentary film entitled Four Horsemen, which reveals the fundamental flaws in the economic system which have brought our civilization to the brink of disaster. As the global economy continues to veer from crisis to catastrophe, many more people are looking for wise counsel on how to reshape the Western economy. Four Horsemen brings together 23 global thinkers to break their silence and explain how the world really works. Their views transcend mainstream media and short-term political explanations to describe in simple terms what needs to be addressed in our universities, governments and corporate structures. We will not be returning to business as usual. Four Horsemen doesn't get involved in banker bashing, criticising politicians or conspiracy theories. The film looks at the systems that we have chosen to live under and suggests ways we could change them. The film pulls no punches in describing the consequences of continued inaction, but its message is ultimately one of hope. If more people can equip themselves with a better understanding of how the world really works, then the systems and structures that condemn billions to poverty or chronic insecurity can at last be overturned. Solutions to the multiple crises facing humanity have never been more urgent, but equally, the conditions for change have never been more favourable. With events veering out of the control of democratic governments and the global economy on life support for the foreseeable future, Four Horsemen is a catalyst to begin a debate around the solutions that we urgently need. Hello and welcome, Ross, and thank you very much for taking time today to join us on LegalizeFreedom.com. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, now the... Uh, the issue, the central issue uh, that uh, Four Horsemen addresses um, is that, I suppose, of the financial system and whether uh, the world financial system, that of countries or of corporations or right down to individuals, um, it's a topic that has not been out of the news really since the uh, financial crash of 08. And it only seems to be looming larger in all of our lives as each day passes. Well, that's right. And uh, everyone keeps calling it a financial crisis. When you really look at it, it's actually an economic crisis. And the reason why that we find ourselves as a, as a Western civilization, as, as the UK, as America, or globally in this uh, situation is because we've taught junk economic for the best part of 150 years. Mm. So it, it's slightly um, misleading to call it a, a financial crisis, when actually the thing that's really underpinning it are, are the economics. And when they're wrong, we can't get anything right. Um, and this idea that everything's going to just be okay and we're going to you know, scrape through, well, frankly, we're not. And um, I think that uh, another great big shudder is only just around the corner for the UK. 
Yeah, it's perhaps an important distinction that that maybe not uh, everyone appreciates uh, the difference between you know finance and economics. And the financial crisis is very much um, characterizing as a as a as problem of uh, the the ends of something. Whereas if you look at it from the economic perspective, it's saying that what underlies this is in fact uh, completely flawed and and needs to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of the points is that with neoclassical economists is that they don't really understand how the financial system works. They just think it's an addendum uh, and, and, and therefore irrelevant to the workings of the whole economy. They don't look at uh, banks, debt, or in fact money uh, as, as having any kind of impact, negative or positive, on, on the economy as a whole. You know, that's crass. I mean, it's, it's madness. Um, and it, it's this huge delusion that um, humanity is... Um, struggling with, if you like, at the moment. It's a huge stumbling block to progress. And until we've addressed neoclassical economics uh, and, and put it or kicked it out, if you like, once and for all, uh, we're going to continue down this track and, uh, you know, it's not going to be pretty. Now, perhaps at this stage it would be good to uh, put people in the frame with a uh, brief uh, distinction, as it were, between neoclassical economics and what we'd call classical economics. Uh, which, from my perspective, is kind of common sense economics, or to uh, to use a phrase from I think it was a Schumacher book, um, economics as if people mattered. Uh, so perhaps you could just sum up the differences between the two ways of uh, thinking. Well, yeah, uh, you know, um, classical economics was well, the god the godfather, of course, and the founding father, if you like, Adam Smith. And Adam Smith didn't really see himself as an economist. He saw himself more as a moral philosopher. And uh, E.F. Schumacher picked up on this. And, and, and if you are a moral philosopher, you, you make moral judgments about how a society should function. Uh, that's not very fashionable at the moment, seen as paternalistic and all the rest of it. But contrast that with neoclassical economics. Neoclassical economics says we are not going to make any moral judgment whatsoever. We're going to leave that out totally. But therein, they make, by not making a moral judgment, therein they make the biggest moral judgment of all, which is we are amoral and we're just going to allow the free market to rip. It isn't free, by the way, but that's what they call it. And the free market will deliver all the um, goodies, if you like, and, and, all, and the society that we, that we require. Um, and, um, and, and again, you know, unless you have something uh, which is, has a foundation in a philosophy, or, or in, in some kind of moral uh, code, uh, well, you, you end up with something which is, well, which is what, what we've got now, which is an economic system, which is totally out of control and, and has no real basis. Um, so they have a very diminished view on natural resources, neoclassical economic, economists as well. Um, and of course, that's where we see all the environmental degradation. Of course, because to, to, um, to take uh, natural resources and the environment out of economic equations is crazy because that that's the only source of real wealth there is. Well, well, it's the only source of real wealth. And the point about this is, um, and, and again, this isn't conspiracy theory. This is just what's happened over years. The systems have become modified, manipulated, arguably corrupted. Uh, and w what's happened is we're today left with the uh, consequence of all that manipulation. Look at it. Neoclassical economists uh, don't see land as a factor of production. Now, I mean, if you said that to somebody, if you said that to a classical economist, he'd look at you and think you're entirely mad. What they do is they, they take land and they conflate it with capital. 
And of course, this is where externalities come in on balance sheets. Because if you can externalize a risk, i.e. land and therefore the and i.e. the environment, um, you don't have to pay for it. It just comes in as capital. Um, and if you take away one unique factor of production and then uh, come up with models and assumptions that aren't based in reality, of course you're not going to be able to predict uh, where crises are going to occur. And of course you're not going to be able to properly predict the amount of environmental damage that we're doing. And that is the state that we're in at the moment. Few uh, economists did see uh, the crash coming, uh, and the reason they saw it is because they're not, uh, let's say, steeped in the in the neoclassical economic dogma. And um, these guys did raise the alarm, but of course they're marginalised. And now, once these models that the neoclassical economists have used have failed, um, these guys who've come up with good models, the likes of Steve Keen uh, in uh, Australia. Um, he, he is being, uh, you know, he's vindicated that yes, the crash has arrived, but now being vilified for presenting a different view of the economy. And it's actually a view that, that I'm very, very sympathetic to. And I think it's got huge amounts of potential. Well, um, a lot of the commentary um, I get from the media, the mainstream media at the moment regarding the, uh, the global financial uh, crisis, um, that which isn't just trying to prop up the neoclassical point of view and say that just, you know, bear with us, everything will be all right, just to give us another six months, uh, is criticism coming loosely from what you would call the left, which is saying, aha, free markets don't work. You left it to be free. And this is what's happened, you know, because the free market takes no regard um, of the human uh, aspect of the equation that's not even in any of the equations. Um, but it's important to point out that, as you said, alluded to just a moment ago, it's not really a free market at all. It's a rigged market in favor in favor of certain players, uh, certain big players. And if it was truly free, we probably wouldn't be where we are today because some of the there be the system would be too diverse in itself to ever. It's only because it's been channeled down this very narrow road, this neoclassical model, um, that you know that basically it's come to the situation that we face now. That's absolutely right. Um, it's one big Ponzi scheme. Uh, it's one great monopoly, and it's a monopoly driven by rent seeking, um, and it's a monopoly that is protecting unearned wealth. So the idea that it's a free market. Um, is naive. It just isn't a free market. And rent-seeking activities can go, you know, I mean, you, traditionally you'd see it as uh, rent-seeking as, as taking natural resources from a, another country um, and, and creaming off the economic rent above the investment that you put in and, and taking that and privatizing it. Well, rent-seeking gets worse than that because it, it can also be classed as um, getting your politician or, or elected official, whoever it may be, to skew the, the playing field so uh, you have an unfair advantage against your competitors. Uh, so, and that, that is basically the rigging of the free market. Um, and just to give an example about how, in my view, how unfair it is, it's like putting an under 11, and this is from an equality point of view as well, it's like putting an under 11 um, football side out uh, with only eight players whose predominant kind of talent is music and putting them against Manchester United with 15 players on the pitch. Mm. That's, yeah. how, uh, that's how unlevel it is. And anyone who comes and says, no, it is a free market, and yes, it's fun functioning perfectly, you have to ask the question, well, if it is functioning perfectly, why does the government keep getting involved uh, and trying to manufacture results? Well, quite. Um, this is, of course, one of the key points that you're <clears throat> trying to put across uh, in your film, Four Horsemen. Uh, now, not only is this your first film, as I understand it, but 
uh, you make no bones about being quote unquote not economically qualified. Now I would count myself in that category as well, but I'd also then qualify that by saying, well, what is economically qualified? Because the economically qualified means delivering the disaster that we're all currently living through. Then perhaps we could do with a different perspective. And I think that you not coming with the, the baggage, perhaps um, to bringing it to the film has delivered a very a fresh perspective that I think a lot of people listening to this would probably understand. People who are not steeped in the money world or even business and finance uh, in any way at all. One of the most refreshing things uh, with the, uh, the end of Q and A is we've been all over Europe at film festivals before Horseman, and we're going to America later this year. Um, it's playing at New Zealand at the moment, and then it's going to Vancouver. And I'm, I'm almost uh, dead cert at the end of every Q and A, people come up and say, "Thank you very much for making this film." I, I knew all those things in there, but I just thought that I was mad. I, I, I thought everyone else was, you know, was saying and it was just me. Uh, and um, intuitively, people understand uh, that something is really untoward, but they don't have the, because of the stresses and strains of modern life, they don't have the thinking time to be able to sit down and really analyze what is wrong. Hopefully we've done that job for them. Now I'm not saying we're thinking for them, but what I am saying is we've distilled down an awful lot of information that you can get now, um, thanks to the internet. And we put it in a, in a, in a one, in one package, in one feature film, which allows and disseminated it in a way which allows people to graze on it, if you like, uh, and um, realize that they weren't crazy. Yes. Economists have delivered this. So it was absolutely right that I uh, um, had come at it from a more, more agricultural background, quite literally. We, I was at agricultural college and they taught me about land economics there. And I thought every single thing that dropped out of the professor's mouth was utter rubbish. Mm. Um, and, and so when you have arrived at, at this thinking fresh without having to quite unlearn a lot of the economics that you've already learned at Oxbridge on a PPE course or whatever it may be, uh, then you're at an advantage. So the key point is this. Anyone listening to this, anyone watching the film, anyone out there who's walking around thinking, God, I'm not an economist, um, you are. Everyone's an economist. If you're, in, if you're interacting with the economy, if you're, if you're bringing up a family, if you're running a business, if you're holding down a job, if you're doing anything of any economic activity at all, you're an economist. And it's as simple, you know, it's obviously from the Greek word um, housekeeping and it's as simple as good housekeeping. And we in the West have not been good housekeepers uh, over the last hundred years. Now, looking at the list of people that you've uh, interviewed uh, for Four Horsemen, uh, there's some very uh, knowledgeable and eminent uh, figures here, but perhaps telling that the names, their names may be new to a lot of listeners and a lot of people who've seen your film may be, you know, saying, don't know who this guy is, but he's talking sense. And that in itself says something. I mean, Joseph Stiglitz, a lot of people, you know, listening to financial news and reading financial papers will have heard of him. Noam Chomsky, uh, a great, I, mean, I suppose we call him left wing philosopher and thinker. John Perkins, the economic hitman, a guy who used to go into countries and do the evil bidding <laughs> of, of the American government and then saw the error of his ways. David Morgan, Mr. Silver, Hugo Salinas Price, a uh, very wealthy Mexican businessman who's advocating uh, the return of silver. Uh, as currency, firstly in his own country. Max Kaiser, the inimitable Max Kaiser. Uh, many uh, listeners might have seen him on Russia Today, a, a one-man whirlwind. And even our own Dominic Frisby uh, of Money Week. And uh, But the list goes on. There are many, many more. And it's just to remind us, really, that the mainstream media may present uh, the coverage as sort of done and dusted by the usual talking heads. But there's a lot of very intelligent, rational, thinking people out there 
with a completely different perspective on what's going on. It was one of the reasons to cast those guys. Um, and the, the reason, there, there were two criteria, really. The first was, um, were they on side? Were they genuinely talking in a way? And you could work this out by reading their blogs or reading what they're, they're saying or listening to them online. What, you know, what, were they markedly different to what they were talking about in the mainstream? And were they um, full of common sense? There you go. That's the first bit. And the second bit um, was more important in the sense that had they actually been in the system and been at, at a position of power within the system and seen firsthand that the system hadn't worked and therefore gone through a transition. And basically, all the people in the film, uh, or the vast majority, if you like, um, had A, been in the system, B, been through a transition, and C, they spoke common sense. And that's enough of a casting call to say, yep, put them in. The, the, the unfortunate thing is the film's only 97 minutes long, and these guys spoke for an hour each. Uh, and, or, um, you know, the vast majority of that hour is gold. Uh, but there's only so much that you can give an audience in one. Well, quite. And I think if, if, you know, if people can watch Four Horsemen and come away um, somewhat enlightened and inspired to look further, I mean, you know, the, the information is out there. This is just another uh, gateway, really. And uh, I would say that it's telling that uh, no banker uh, would be interviewed uh, for your film. I think it gave us the uh, nod, if you like, that we were on the right track. Uh, I went and met an awful lot of bankers and the producer of the film, Megan Ashcroft, is a, is a former banker, uh, saw what was going on within the system and, and couldn't um, and didn't want to be part of it anymore and left. Um, so she understands the financial system very, very well um, and was a brilliant resource when we were writing this. It was incredibly helpful to have someone who's been in there right at the coalface. And then when I met these guys that come on, you know, tell me what's going on, they told me everything after a couple of glasses of wine. And I said, fine, now look, come on air and tell me that. And you've never seen anyone scarper out of a bar as quickly as, as these guys, you know. Um, and because an awful lot of the practices are morally indefensible. I mean, if you think of sp food speculation, uh, you know, it, it, it has no place in a civilized society. And that's just one element of, of where these people um, derive their profit from. Uh, there's, there's, there's thousands of examples of, of that type of uh, trading that goes on on a daily basis. Um, what you're referring to, basically, just <clears throat> for people, is to understand that uh, bankers and financiers will make bets on prices of things going, commodities going in certain direction. Uh, so if there was a big, in one example, if there was a big spike in the price of a certain basic foodstuff, some individuals or companies could stand to make a lot of money, but it would hit ordinary individuals very hard. And we're not talking here about the free rising and falling and moving of prices in an open market, but you know, a manipulated contrived insider knowledge sort of spike quite and um the point there is that it, it doesn't it would hit individuals in the west hard yes but it hits the bottom billions who can't then afford to buy wheat in developing countries even harder and there was a moment in 2008 where there was a silent tsunami it was called and the mainstream media didn't really pick up on it and it's because these guys are hedging bets having uh, had the uh, market deregulated uh, back in the late 1990s so that they're allowed to speculate on, on these things. Now, my point is that I don't think that that has any place in a civilized society. It's really very simple. So well, when you when you say to these bankers, come on and talk about the system, of course they won't. And, 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 and equally, um, they won't come on. You know, I did a Radio 3 interview recently and a banker was going to come on and, and debate the film with me and they sent him a copy of the film and then he, he declined the invite. 
Um, and his view was that, well, we create wealth. Well, bankers create wealth for the whole of society. Again, that's not true. Bankers create money. And, and what we have to differentiate is money and wealth. Money can be used to, to acquire wealth, but money in and of itself is not actually wealth. Um, what you constantly see in, in the me mainstream media is all bankers are wealth creators. Well, that isn't actually true. And if you think about the UK, only 8% of loans last year um, were um, given to investment in the real economy. And when I talk about the real economy, Greg, I, I talk about the economy that you and I both exist in. Nurses, doctors, binmen, dentists, people who provide services uh, and provide products and real experiences. That's the real economy. The other economy, virtual economy, if you like, is the banking sector. And the question in the UK and also the West generally is how long can we, um, let's say, suffer this parasite before it actually kills the host? And, and that is a question that should be on everyone's lips. And it's a question that should be asked on the mainstream media uh, on a regular basis. But it isn't because we're under this delusion, illusion that bankers are wealth creators. They're not. Well, the most profitable thing that you can do today is to make money off money. And that in itself should tell us all we need to know. I mean, that's just it's, it's illogical if you think it through, but it, it doesn't it, it's wrong on so many levels, on every conceivable level, actually. Um, yes, totally. Totally. And um, and it needs to someone someone with the, the right political will needs to stand up and stop that. And, but unfortunately, those people are, um, you know, they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. So a vicious circle is an incredibly difficult one to break. Now, one of the bigger picture um, scenarios that Four Horsemen set. So is what I would call the arc of empires, which is kind of how empires begin and build and grow and reach their zenith and then gradually or quite rapidly decline. And in the film, it becomes clear that kind of whether it's the US or whether it's the West uh, in general, but that our experience of the last, I suppose, of the industrial age, really uh, a little bit before that. But generally in the industrial age in the West has, has been an empire and not just in the sense of the British Empire or whatever, but the American Empire that we're seeing starting to quake a little in its foundations now. And empires tend to end in, amongst other things, economic upheaval. And it's quite a compelling case in the film made for this is what we're, we're seeing now, you know, the end of an empire. I read a book by Sir John who had written um, Age of uh, Empires. Uh, and uh, he says that you know, he, he'd looked at a lot of empires and, and, and seen certain distinguishing traits amongst them all. Um, one of which is that they last around 250 years. Um, and, and, and another five which are really interesting is that um, there are certain traits at the end of empires which are uh, always, um, they, they, they always appear when the empire is in decline. And things like leaders and, and citizens who, who scramble for the spoils because of the dazzling wealth they've seen during the height of this empire, uh, which we're seeing now, because what happens is duty and service is replaced by this, um, let's say, uh, covetous scramble. But then other things like a desire to live off the state, um, a, a greater disparity between the rich and the poor, um, a lack of military discipline, which of course we're seeing, um, an obsession with sex uh, also is uh, a common trait of declining empires, um, and, uh, and and so these things were were really interesting to me, and I thought that um, because I can see them in in the in the modern world that we live in now. Maybe these timeless principles, you know, we, we might think we're incredibly pro progressive and we've advanced and all the rest of us as humans, but really we've got a kind of gibbon-like tendency to repeat the same mistakes um, as our predecessors. So I don't put it in. Uh, to give the film a broader context, I really didn't want to bash bankers and, and criticise 
politicians needlessly, you know, I would just chase them around and say, you're all bad. I wanted to kind of move the, the conversation to a bigger realm to say, look, we've been here before, but now, and this is the hopeful point, and the film is steeped in hope, that the hopeful point is, because we have been here before, we now have access to the knowledge and the technology to be able to read to, to the end of the empires, the age of decadence. We can actually, uh, as Mark Braun uh, has written with me in, in the Four Horsemen Survival Manual, uh, launch the age of humanity because the, the provided the will is there on behalf of the public and the technology and the wisdom and, and all the rest of it is there. You can actually start to say, well, what sort of society do we want? What sort of economy do we want? Once we've made those sort of moral calls uh, and, and decided, then you can get the technocrats to come in and start creating that society, if you like, provided they've been given the right brief. Um, but just letting us cascade, you know, at the end of the party, if you like, into the abyss is, is a non-option. We need to step up, really. Now, one of the things in um, the, your, your characteristics of a declining and failing empire that kind of tickled me. I mean, it was, it was I say, a laugh out loud moment in the film for me. And God knows there's not much to laugh about in this arena. But uh, was the uh, veneration of and, and celebrity of chefs. Because well, I'd, I'd never read this in any historical texts, and I thought, my God, I've often watched, you know, <laughs> cookery shows and thought, why is this guy so wealthy? Why is he able to go around swearing at people and being acting like such a, a you know, an idiot? And yet yeah. pe people think he's wonderful. It's only cooking after all. And I like cooking, but I do understand yeah. the end of the deal. It's just, it's just a, a meal. <laughs> I think that the point is... Um, Mickey Flanagan, the stand-up comedian, does a great gag about Ramsay, and he says um, he just says, "Look, Ramsay, relax. It's it's only a bit of dinner. If it all goes wrong, I'll go out and get a bargain bucket," <laughs> um, and, uh, which which is lovely, and that's uh, Mickey Flanagan at, at his finest. But the point is this: that at the end of the empire, you, you, we've had every, you, you've had all the spoils, all the land rent has been collected. All the money that you need. How else do you? How else do you gorge oneself? You know, or or how, what? What are the other sensory experiences that you can have? Well, sex obviously uh, is one, and, and we see a proliferation of it, uh, and and the amount of um, porn that's in the world now and being watched and all the rest of it. That means that you know that 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 outlet, if you like, is has become recreational and, and somewhat immature, frankly. But the other thing is food, um, and the logical. Um, progression of that is obesity uh, when when citizens literally become a burden on the state which is what we're seeing with the binge drinking that you see in most english cities uh british cities on a uh you know on a friday night uh, and then people become a burden on on healthcare professionals um uh, so people gorge themselves at the end of the empire i mean the romans did it and uh, and all the rest of it and again it, that, that isn't anything new uh, but that's what we're doing now so the reason why ramsey etc are also wealthy is because they foresaw the end of empire <laughs> um well i must say when i observe the um this behavior you describe and watch you know drunkenness and indulgence and um you know all the the excess underlying it particularly with um i'm showing my age now but particularly with the younger generation there seems to be an incredible nihilism that underpins yeah. it. They kind of they can't see the future. They know that they're probably going to carry on living, but yeah. they can't see the future, what it consists of, and nothing seems to point shine a light for them. And you have to have total empathy for them. 
you know, if you see, if you put the riots, uh, the, the London riots in context, of course, all the politicians and all the rest of it clamored to drench the airwaves uh, with moral indignation when it happened. And, and, and uh, they, but they jumped hoops uh, to, to, to um, not to avoid the real reason. And the real reason is for the first time ever, a generation of the adage that the generation coming through is going to live better than the generation that's just been is no longer the case because the intergenerational uh, breakdown has occurred, if you like. The intergenerational contract has been broken. Now, I'm not saying that that um, intergenerational contract has been broken uh, deliberately, but I'd say that um, what, whatever you think, that we, we can't discount the fact that that this generation coming through, uh, younger generation, are, are not going to live as well as, as the baby boomers, for instance. Uh, so, of course, they feel incredibly uh, hopeless. And when hope goes, you know, everything goes with it. And unless you re-engineer or, or recalibrate, if you like, the economic system so it allows people access to it, just access to the economy. We touched on the free market earlier. Well, the way we've ordered the economy at the moment means that structurally we have to have unemployment so that the, the top whatever percent can, kind, can, can milk or rent seek um, the kind of salaries that they're getting. So until you flatten that playing field and until you've dealt with that thorny issue, you're going to see a continuation of the nihilism uh, that, we, that, that, you, that you are seeing uh, and that you saw during the riots. Now, as regards um, the current up and coming generation not living as well um, as, their, as their forebears, and in fact, you know, I'm in my 40s and Certainly, I don't know whether I'll end my life better or worse off than my parents did, but I do know that certainly their generation took certain things for granted, like, you know, uh, for the middle classes anyway, you know, a house and a car, and that you didn't have to have a husband and wife both working and maybe working a couple of jobs just to make ends meet. Um, and regarding the younger generation situation, there is a an issue with natural resources and perhaps dwindling natural resources that, that that's playing into this. However, the, the big headline factor at the moment is with the, the economic system and the debt-based system, and that's been compounding and compounding for the last 100 years. And a lot of the problems now regarding that artificial debt, because it's an artificial thing, it doesn't exist in the real world, yeah. um, a monolithic debt that can never be repaid and yet um, much of the media commentary is regarding how it must be repaid and therefore we're going to slash this, cut that, remove that, and destroy that in order to repay this you know, debt that only really exists in, a, in the mind of a computer somewhere. Well, quite. I mean, that, as you rightly say, the debt doesn't exist. It just exists on, on um, balance sheets of, of these monolithic corporations and no, it'll never be repaid. Um, that's why in the film what we recommend is a debt jubilee. Uh, and we recommend it strongly, and I, because there's a very simple uh, concept at work here, which is a debt that can't be paid won't be. Uh, and you know, back in Mesopotamia and back in Babylon and the earlier societies, when the elites realised that they were on the wrong side of the uh, deal, if you like, and they realised that the debt had accrued to such levels uh, that what they suggested was a clean slate, and that's where we get the idea of clean slate from, or the, or the term clean slate. Because they wipe off everyone's debts, um, they, uh, it's a kind of moment where the economy has a clean out, a spring clean, uh, and then we start again. Uh, and that's what we have to do uh, today.
we have to use that ancient wisdom um, and not see it as anything uh, but progressive. People might paint it as, as a thing of, you know, a barbarous relic like they do gold. But actually, uh, it isn't. There's a, there's a natural law, actually, to, to economy and, and ecology. And, uh, and we've had the hubris to ignore it. And that's why we find ourselves in this state now. So we recommend a debt jubilee. Um, and um, the quicker it happens, the better. Well, the, you know, given that money was originally intended only as a medium of exchange, you know, I've got some fish, you've got some goats. Um, I'd like one of your goats, but you don't want any of my fish. So there, there is a money provides a solution to those sort of situations. But for it to grow into what it has uh, become now, this this sort of monster, and uh, for people to you know go on the media and say, oh, but there's nothing we can do, and we must do this. You know, we could undo it. We could reverse everything in the blink of an eye if we chose to do so. Yeah, we need the we need the political will, we need the personal uh, um, will, and we need a bunch of leaders who who've got the courage um, and hopefully charism charismatic enough to be able to sell the idea. That's all you need to do. Um, but basically, um, before all that, it's a job of education and communication, and that's why we made the film. You, you, you've got to get people to understand uh, where we're really at, as opposed to watching mainstream news. You know, you, you, you can't watch News at 10 on the BBC and listen to their economics editor uh, coming out with things like, just as an example, and I heard it recently, um, the Bank of England has created money in the way only the Bank of England can. Well, that's just a lie. All private banks create money out of thin air and lend it at interest. Um, and, and so to have that, that misinformation there at 10 o'clock um, isn't helpful. Now, I'm not saying for a minute it's conspiratorial. It isn't. It's, it's just that someone's misinformed and they're giving that misinformation out. So the film needs to go out, educate and communicate what's really going on. And then people can get behind a narrative, um, something, for instance, that Occupy didn't have, uh, and then push their elected leaders or become elected leaders themselves and push onto the mainstream debate what the reforms really have to be. Because this constant kind of little, you know, technocratic triage, a little bit here and half a percent here and here, a bit of a percentage point here. And, oh, well, this has shifted two percent. Well, all that is fiddling while Rome's burning. Mm. The, the famed uh, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Well, quite. And, uh, um, yeah, and you know, and, and but we've got to kind of get beyond left and right and Tory and, and Labour and, and blue and red and all this stuff. Um, to be able to, and, and, and this is what really has to be said. What is a decent social democracy? And, and then as soon as you start asking those broad questions and start saying, we've got to stop attacking each other. I mean, if, you know, if old, if old statesmen came back now and watched uh, prime minister's questions in the House of Commons on a Wednesday, they'd just think it's like two children in a playground, frankly. And we've got to get beyond that because the whole country wants, certainly the UK and I'm sure America wants uh, to get beyond that. But unfortunately, we're stuck in this old paradigm. And the only way we can get out of this old paradigm is by re-educating or, or unlearning and relearning. Because self-education, ultimately, uh, in this situation, is the only thing uh, that, well, it's the only place that I see salvation. Wasn't it Mark Twain who said, uh, I never let my schooling get in the way of my education? 
Yeah, and thankfully we uh, we put it in the film uh, just uh, on the last chapter card called Progress. I think it's a wonderful quote. And um, but and as good, uh, we put a fictitious characters uh, quote in uh, from Fight Club, Tyler Durden, mm-hmm. and he said that the um, things you own often end up owning you. Uh, and uh, I think that's also very true. I mean, think of it. Look at the amount of self storage we've got in this country now. It's absolutely incredible. These self-storage facilities are going up. So you buy something on a credit card, you then go and put it in self-storage, you visit it every weekend, and it's still burning away on your credit card. Honestly, this this kind of behavior will go down in history as absolute lunacy, up there with tulip mania. Well, we shouldn't, and with reference to Tyler Durden, I don't think it would be the first time that a what turned out to be a mythical character said something profound and that we uh, society adopted it as if it had really been said but in regard even if it's a line in a film said by brad pitt it was still said and it's yeah. still true and I, what i don't know about you but what, can i really be the only one uh, in fight club when he stood in that tower block in the financial district and he's talking about pushing the button and what would happen to reset everything everything goes to zero nobody knows who owns what who owes what all goes back to year zero and i find it incredibly exhilarating <laughs> do you know what the do you know, in my view do you know what one of the byproducts of that would be uh total renaissance mm. uh, you you you'd you would have such an incredible society um and it's not it's not very difficult to do I, no. I know i know that sounds incredibly glib but once you've identified the problem the solution is so self-evident that only a madman wouldn't take it or oh. or <laughs> one of the one percent well, quite. I mean, maybe those listening to this will say a ludicrous idea. I mean, at the very least, you know, completely radical. But but is it any more ludicrous or radical or extreme than what we have by inaction and lack of education allowed to happen? Depends what your definition on radical is. Um, you know, if, if in the UK, one percent of the of the people own 70 percent of the land, I call that radical. Hmm. Uh, so, I simply meant that radical, it can be, depending on your perspective, good or bad. It's just... Yeah. But the mainstream will always say, oh, well, this is really radical. Well, you know, equally, 1% owning 99% of the wealth or whatever the stats are, that's radical. You know, um, a, a, a CEO being paid 750 times the amount of the lowest paid employee, that is radical. But that's all seen as absolutely right because the free market is, is working perfectly. No, no, no. That's, that's deluded. Um, if you think that that's that's right. So th- those things are radical. Um, asking for a debt jubilee and asking um, for people's, uh, uh, let's say, right to access the economy, that isn't radical. That That's that's very basic stuff. But this is what happens when with the language when an economy flips over. People get you know, conversations like this get painted as radical. Um, and this uh, idea of conservatism comes back and these very right wing kind of policies. And, and that's the fear, really, because uh, when people with a bit of wealth do get very scared, they can start backing the wrong horse. Um, and, you know, we don't need to go very far back in history to, to see that pattern. Well, quite, quite. Um, one of the key points uh, that you uh, touched on earlier and that there's growing awareness of this, um, partly because of what's happening in, with the world economic system, is the notion that. Uh, the private it is private banks uh, which create our money and not governments uh, even though governments um, have the right to do so and even if they didn't they could just create the right to do so because of the government it's in fact private banks that do this and then they lend the money at interest now this seems just unconscionable 
to any thinking human being from my perspective, but nevertheless, it's what happens. And it would be one thing if they just created the money, but to then pull it from thin air and say, we'll be having that back plus 10%. Well, of course, what they never do is create that 10%. So in order for the money to be paid back, somebody has to lose out. Hence, it is like a Ponzi scheme. Hence, we're seeing the situation unfolding now, which the debt compounds, it gets ever greater because the private banks create the principal, but not the interest. Well, quite. And, you know, Tarek Aldawani does a really good job in the film of articulating it perfectly, as does Herman, Professor Herman Daly. And, and um, Tarek says that, you know, if um, if accountants did it, they'd be that would be called cooking the books. Uh, if he did it personally at home, that would be called counterfeiting. And the one I'm talking about, of course, is creating money. Um, uh, but if banks do it, it's perfectly legal. And he says, as long as you allow that fraud to be legalized, you're going to end up with um, elements in the system that you can't do anything about. And that's where we're at today. And I know that might sound incredibly difficult for people to 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 get their mind around. Um, but but that really is the fact. Uh, so when you uh, say to somebody, you know, at a dinner party or a party or whatever, banks create money out of nothing and lend it an interest. They look at you and think you're entirely mad or a conspiracy theorist. Because it's so simple uh, that the mind is repelled. They say it can't be that simple. And it is that simple. Mm. Now, one of the factors uh, playing into all this, um, the world economic situation and its kind of unraveling, is the (coughs) the, uh, perpetual growth model, uh, which most uh, industrial countries have, and in some non-industrial ones as well. The idea that year on year, the economy will grow. Now, first of all, the economy growing is a bit of a misunderstood uh, concept anyway, because economic growth simply measures more or less economic activity. So if there was a flu pandemic in any given country, the, the growth uh, figures uh, and GDP, gross domestic product, the figures would rise because of the increased you know, ambulance call outs and vaccines and That's all right. the rest of it. So it's no reflection of, of uh, good things happening necessarily in an economy. Um, it's It can be whatever, it's just activity. And the, this is still being pursued, the idea of perpetual economic growth, even as the background of the uh, uh, economic system unraveling. And that's kind of showing the system for what it is in many ways, because ministers and, and economists are getting on the media and saying, oh, well, you know, we must increase growth. It's our way out of this situation, which is kind of ridiculous if you think about it. And, you know, we must create jobs and do this, that while all the while their means of doing so is diminishing. Well, you know, growth, it's, it's madness. What they should be doing is coming on and saying what we need to create is a steady state economy. And Herman Daly wrote about it in 1977. And still, you know, the knowledge is out there to do it, but we're chained if you like or addicted to the narcotics of growth uh, and and growth uh, we, in the west we are at the end of the benefits of economic growth and i know a lot of people will put their fingers in their ears oh my god how can you say that well in developing countries that isn't the case because there's still a case to be made and, and it is and it is true that when people are in dire poverty you need economic growth to pull them above uh, the poverty line no doubt um, we need to create jobs and, and, you know, and, and manufacture goods and all the stuff that, that, uh, that a fledgling economy needs. Yes, you need economic growth to drive all that. But there's a point where uh, you are beyond the, let's say, benefits of economic growth. And that's where we are now in the West. 
you know, just take it at a personal level. There's been some fantastic research done saying that if you uh, get beyond, above £15,000 in salary, happiness uh, doesn't increase. You know, what human beings are here for is actually relationships and other human beings. Um, but what we've got is this kind of uh, because of the celebrity element and, and the, the conspicuous consumption and the bling stuff that's going on. We still think that we've got to have all the trinkets. Well, that's not the case. And, it, and actually, it leads to absolutely deep unhappiness. And it also leads to environmental degradation. So we've got to kind of rethink. Uh, and, and there are people, by the way, and there are generations now, younger generations who come and see the film. And you see that they're not. Uh, well, certainly the ones in, in, in the audiences that we've seen, they're not uh, pursuing that old model of, of uh, you know, acquiring stuff for the for the sake of acquiring stuff. Um, and hopefully the film will make enough of a case um, for, for people to realise, well, yeah, you know, a steady state economy is something that we'd prefer because the, hu- the, the world at the moment is full of, let's say, man-made capital. Uh, and it's not, um, and it's empty of uh, natural capital um, and man-made capital, boats, you know, houses, cars, and all the rest of it. Natural capital are the raw materials to make those things. And what we need to do is put the brakes on that uh, with strategic tax policies uh, to be able to conserve the planet. Then the notion of taxing uh, consumption rather than earnings, I suppose, which some people will go, what? What do you mean? But uh, it's quite a sound idea. Well, you know, if if you if you said strategically we're going to put a resource rent tax on the oil that is going to come out of Libya, for instance, imagine the society that you would be able to build in Libya. Imagine the education uh, facilities. Imagine the roads. Imagine the rail links. Imagine the infrastructure. It would be absolutely awesome. And it would mean that economic hitmen like John Perkins wouldn't be able to go in there and sign them up to debt deals which rely on uh, huge amounts of or incessant uh, economic growth to be able to pay the debt. So instead of getting a negative economy, if you like, where debt uh, constantly drives down the, the standard of living for everyone, what you'd have is a debt-free economy because the infrastructure would have been paid for from the resource rents out of the oil, which is being consumed somewhere else. And then you would get a virtuous circle. Um, but you see, then very quickly, Libya or a country that did this would become the threat of a good example. And, you know, American foreign policy doesn't want the threat of a good example because, uh, you know, well, it thrives on the, unfortunately, as, as we sit here today at this moment, it thrives on the industrial military industrial complex. And, and that is a profit center for those guys. So, it, you know, it, what we try to do in the film is link all these aspects, not again in a conspiratorial way, but into in a factual way. So you can see uh, the, the, the reason why a lot of these deals go ahead. But yeah, taxing consumption um, and taking, uh, as in uh, land site values, and taking uh, the uh, income tax away or, the, or and, and business taxes would, <clears throat> would unleash the kind of entrepreneurship that we need to refloat the Western economy. Now, even if, uh, as I would like to see, uh, one would like to see a situation where the state and the government is shrunk to the smallest possible size and issues of tax dwindled away and one day there'll be a situation where there was no tax, even in such a system, if operating under natural law, effectively there would be a tax on natural resources uh, because they almost enact, they have a, a cost, they have a benefit that's, that's gone once they're exploited. So in effect, someone consuming them or over consuming them would be taxed. Um, so what you're saying would still apply 
uh, you know, in a, it doesn't have to, I guess what I'm trying to say is it doesn't have to rely on a draconian system of taxes and regulations to work. It, it has a natural law element to it, the, the very idea. I think so. And, and when you become divorced from natural law, and this might be, you know, when you mention the words natural law, people think, oh, well, you know, lions, like, well, it's, it's dog eat dog, isn't it? And, and well, natural law is just the law, the law of the jungle. Well, no, na- natural law is about understanding about how to live in harmony with nature. Um, but unfortunately, uh, the, the, the arrogance of man thinks that we can cheat nature. So you have the proliferation of GM crops and you have, you know, um, a lot of um, environmental uh, depletion. And, and we think that we can get away with it. Well, we can't. And if our, if our one job on this earth is, is very clear and it is to work out what those natural laws are and to live within them. Um, and lots of people have been marginalized or, you know, seen as nut jobs for saying that sort of thing. Um, but all of them, are, are full, the people who've said it, are full of wisdom. But it's just unpalatable for an awful lot of people um, to have to dedicate the kind of time, effort and patience to be able to work out those natural laws. But yes, you'd be living in, in harmony with nature. And also then what you'd see once you start appreciating the uh, the, the natural law and not, and not the, the man-made law, uh, you'd see a general harmony fall across society. Now, one of the aspects that you get into um, a little later in the film is uh, terrorism. And you link this with, um, you know, the, the economic situation globally as it is. And it's one of the uh, pieces of fallout that we have to endure. Now, of course, it's characterized very differently in the West and specifically in the mainstream media. We all know what they have to say about, you know, every terrorist that's either from a little local group through to international, Eastern, you know, radical right wing, uh, Muslim extreme, you name it, the whole panoply of terrorists have all got their story uh, told to us by the mainstream media and we think we understand what's going on. But there's much more to it than that. And I think perhaps summed up uh, in a comment that John Perkins has made on a number of occasions, which was that he had met um, many terrorists, but he'd never met one that wanted to be a terrorist. Quite. People are driven to terrorism because they are hopeless. Um, the, the, the system that they are living under, the economic system that they're living under, doesn't give them any hope. Um, so you, are, you think, well, look, you know, all is lost. What can I do? And they, these people are at their wits end. Now, I'm not justifying their behavior for one second. Uh, and I am. And, 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 and also uh, a caveat is that there are some people out there who are mad and, and you know, do, do the most atro- or commit the most atrocious crimes um, because they are genetically predisposed to do so or they have a psychological condition. But the vast majority of people who get involved in these training camps or, or uh, they do so because um, they don't have any um, future that, or any decent future that they can perceive of. If you want enlightened American foreign policy, what you'd start to do is give these people uh, hope, uh, offer them a decent future. Uh, you wouldn't go around bombing the hell out of the foothills of whatever country uh, trying to eradicate uh, this this terrorist threat, because as we state in the film, every time you kill one terrorist, you then go and inadvertently uh, create 500 more 
because they see what's happening as a bigger injustice on top of the already injustice that's the injustice that's already going on. You know, um, and, and until we've reconciled that in our own minds and lots of people in the West have reconciled that and they do understand it um, until we're there, we can't properly address uh, the quote terrorism issue. But, you know, terrorism's too narrowly a defined term, really. Um, and, and maybe the word socially organized violence are better because one of the things that you could do is point to the corporations in the West who benefit so much out of building infrastructure projects in these countries that have been bombed to hell. And you could actually accuse them of socially organized violence or terrorism by taking away the resource rents or, or, or the economic rent that should actually uh, morally and, and legally go to the people within the country. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a double edged sword, this terrorism claim. And, um, and you have to be very, very careful with it because a lot of shareholders of those companies that have gone in and profited hugely, well, you'd ask, have they got their, are their hands clean? Well, and also, if you look up the dictionary definition of terrorism, uh, you would find that, oh, wait a minute, you know, a lot of actions of a lot of uh, Western and other governments and a lot of uh, international corporations actually fall into this category. Yeah. And as Noam Chomsky says in the film, when we talk about terrorism, it's what they do to us, not what do we do to them. And that's true. Uh, and again, uh, younger generations are starting to understand that. And, you know, one of my um, one of the things that makes me really hopeful is that for the first time um, really ever, you've had younger people going on um, and, and traveling a lot after school and university. And I think that one of the effects of that has been uh, to heighten the empathy um, and, and broaden the worldview of a, a generation of people. Um, so when they eventually, um, and they're the ones that are going to inherit this mess, obviously, uh, that, that when they eventually get into power, I think you'll see a, a, a very different and possibly more enlightened worldview, um, which, you know, let's face it, the West and, and the world desperately needs. We do have a situation now, uh, however, that would that makes it very difficult for people with, with different ideas um, to enter the political system. Uh, you know, many people comment, why would I even want to do that? You know, we'll just bypass it, you know, go under it, go over it, go around it, whatever. And um, it's almost like the corporate governance system we have now of corporations and, and uh, government and the revolving door of people moving between them, that it's it's a... Uh, it is, you know, a profoundly um, corrupt system, but it does have a very tight grip, a tight grip on things, and it can be circumvented. But to go through it, you know, it's it it seems like a, you know a tall order. Yeah, it does. I mean, I don't think that any of the change is going to come from the three. And if you would just take the UK as a um, as an example, I don't think any of the change is going to come from the three parties that that we we currently have. I think that what needs to happen are, are new. Uh, political parties um, and and a new political paradigm, which is, as I said earlier, beyond left and right. Um, I, you know, I, I think that we've got to get away from this tribal politics uh, and this parochial kind of, you know, tip, my dad's bigger than your dad nonsense um, and, and really move to something which genuinely serves um, the people. Because, you know, the, cl the class system isn't there as it was. Um, you, you've now got an uh, education system that's in disarray. We, we need a, a new party to uh, to come, or new parties to come in and address the things that are genuinely uh, 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 affecting people, as opposed to more elitists coming in 
and trying to prescribe a solution to a situation that they've never experienced. Well, I mean, we see how independent MPs um, are sort of marginalised, even in the UK, in this country. Uh, so it makes it rather you know, difficult from the off to enter the system without a party umbrella and yeah. inf infrastructure above you, I suppose. Well, it does. But I mean, you know, I wouldn't waste too much time uh, criticizing the current system uh, or, or, um, or, or trying to rectify it. I think it's doing a good enough job of breaking itself down. Um, so leave them to get on with it um, and put, put your efforts into, uh, you know, in, into something that's worthwhile, which is starting something which which uh, allows people a different option. Uh, and that, that might sound outlandish now, but I tell you, in 10 years time, uh, people are going to be looking for that option because the, all the, uh, ideologically, all these main parties are going to be, well, they're scuppered now. Well, yeah, in the UK, uh, the Liberal Democrats and for, for people listening who don't know what they are, um, it's suitably bland name as a lot of political parties have. It could be left, right, centre. You just can't tell. <laughs> but uh, they were basically the, they were sort of the last hope for many people in in Britain uh, as an alternative to. Even though the Liberal Party itself is long established, um, the Liberal Democrats were viewed as sort of a middle way. You know, not too far left wing, not right wing, and but they recently, uh, fairly recently, entered into a coalition government with the right wing Conservative Party. And for, for a lot of people, that's been a bit of a wake up call, not in my experience in the mainstream, not because they know what to do now or that the light has gone on, but certainly one light that they thought was there has been switched off. Quite. Um, and therefore, and, and maybe that's the motivation that people need uh, to realize that no one's actually looking after stuff. There's a very conscious choice that we made in the film. You know, at the end of a lot of films, you see documentary features you see um a, a call to action if you like which is sign this petition and, and we'll we'll talk to whoever it is that will then solve this problem that we have and we decided not to put any such petition or or, or call to action at the end of the film because what we have to do is leave uh, people who watch four horsemen with the moral obligation to actually do something um and if we allowed somebody to sign a, a petition and then go on with their life as it were they think oh someone else is looking after it well guess what no one else is looking after it mm. like literally no one else is looking after this and with the liberal democrats that's probably been a decent call to action when we've seen them sell out in the way that they have because you say well actually there's no third party now uh, so there's just two tribal warring parties and you know what this is this is uh, this is a real problem so what we now need to do is re-engage um, and start to create those new political institutions that will genuinely, and I'm not just saying lip service here, uh, you know, get in and then listen to lobbyists and take as much loot as they can and leave, would genuinely try uh, and, and affect changes um, that w will help the, the man on the street. And I would, for my part, very much say that individuals are not powerless, that there are things, uh, even one thing that any and all of us could do today that would in a small way begin to affect change in the situation. Now, one thing I did several years ago was basically withdraw uh, from the banking system. I still have a bank account, which I use for you know, various transactions, but took whatever wealth I had and took it out of their hands. Now, of course, I'm saying to myself partly, oh, well, that means at least I'm not funding wars. But of course, you know, a lot of that can be, you know, the resources are there to make bombs and make tanks and make planes, whatever, and they can pull the financing for it out of thin air. But for me, it's a 
it's it's I can't even really put it into words. It's sort of a, a psychological thing. I've certainly felt differently since doing that, and I think that's where it begins in people's thinking about it and understanding that as all-encompassing as the system seems to be at the moment, it hasn't always been there, and it won't always be there. That's absolutely true, and I think it's a really, really, really important point. One of the Q&A questions that always comes up at the end of the film is, what can I do? Well, um, I can't, and I don't think anyone should tell anyone what they are to do or should do. But what you can say is this. The the biggest change and the best change isn't, a big heroic act of, you know, swimming across the, rowing across the Atlantic or some, or some huge moment. It isn't that at all. It's actually something that's very small, but the effect is huge. And the very small act is of what you can do is change yourself. And that's the one thing that we don't really, really look at. You know, there's the ability to say, in your case, right, I'm going to take all my cash out of this bank. Or, uh, you know, in my case, right, I'm going to go and, and make this film to highlight the system. And if, if you know, 60, 60 million people in Britain, if there were 60 million um, small acts, not dissimilar to those two, or, or you know, just conscious uh, consuming, whatever it may be, whatever it may be, then suddenly you get a, a qualitatively different society. Um, so the the real change, the, the great leaps that, that occur in in prog- with progress, human human progress, is when a a, um, a bunch of people realise that, that what they thought were a competing enemy actually have the same interests as them, and, and once one changes one's perception and mindset, just that fraction, you can then all start going forward together, and that's that's very exciting. Um, but if unfortunately, <laughs> it starts with um, it starts with you. Now, I'm what we'd call a short-term pessimist uh, as regards to where all this is going. And as you said, and it must be borne out that uh, Four Horsemen ultimately is uh, bringing across a message of hope for the future. Um, but would you, do you find yourself in the short-term pessimist category? Yes, um, but I think that that, I'd call it short-term realist um, because you know, there's no point going around in this kind of Panglossian way going, oh, everything's going to be fine. You know, they thought that when Hitler was rising, um, everything's going to be fine. Well, it isn't going to be fine because this kind of escapism or this ostrich technique um, might do you well kind of personally. And then you withdraw and have non-confrontation with the world and just surround yourself in your home with your luxuries and all the rest of it. But that isn't any good. So I'm a short-term realist. I think it's going to get a lot worse, and I think it's going to have to get a lot worse before it gets better. Um, but provided once we have hit the bottom, um, which is you know going to be ugly, um, provided the right change is then chosen, you can then start to build a different society with different values and all the rest of it. Um, but unfortunately, uh, I think it's going to have to get there before there is the uh, political will, but also the uh, the elect the electorate needs uh, you know a collective will too. And and I don't think that that is there yet because everyone's hoping above hope. Like with other recessions and depressions, we're just going to get back to business as usual. Well, my view is. Uh, in this globalized world that we're not actually going to get back to business as usual uh, and things are going to shift dramatically uh, and, and we have to be ready for that. Um, so yes, short-term pessimism stroke realism, but long-term optimism uh, because people are brilliant. Uh, human beings are incredibly, uh, well, in fact, we're exceptional uh, adapting 
and um, ultimately I think we'll we'll win it out, uh, provided we find the will to. Excellent. Well, as we uh, begin to wind up um, our chat for today, perhaps uh, you can tell the listeners um, about where they can see or get hold of uh, Four Horsemen. So uh, if you go to fourhorsemanfilm.com, uh, you'll see on there uh, the film, also the book Four Horsemen, The Survival Manual, which I've co-written with Mark Braund. Um, and, uh, and also you'll see some of the screening dates. Um, now, that isn't just UK-based. Screenings in New Zealand, as I said earlier, and, and Canada, uh, all over the place. Um, so there's the option there of buying the film DVD from Amazon, uh, the, is, which I would recommend. There's also the option actually on the site, if you can't wait and you've heard this interview and think, my God, I've got to see that film, you can watch it now this second by punching in your credit card details um, into uh, our, our player on the site uh, and that will screen it immediately for you. Uh, but my recommendation is buy the DVD because it's got lots of extra features on it and you'll really enjoy it. And if you want to come and meet us, please do. Uh, we're at Q&As are listed on the site and it would be lovely to see a friendly face and an audience to say hello um, and uh, we're around about. Um, in fact, uh, just a, a shameless plug, we're up at Oxford University. We're screening the film as part of the Oxdocs. Uh, festival uh, on the 27th of this month uh, and we're sitting in the union telling them that the economics that they're teaching at Oxford aren't up to scratch so if you're up for a debate uh, at the Oxford Union and you want to come and hear me say that to them uh, then come along um, and uh, I'll be the bloke at the front with a riot shield and that's April 27th that's right just in case someone's listening to this in, you know, the year 3000 or something like that. <laughs> that was, yeah, and that's 2012. So if this is if this is 2014, you're listening to this, don't go to the Oxford Union. <laughs> well, you can go. I mean, there's a nice <laughs> coffee shop. <laughs> okay, Ross Ashcroft, thank you very much for taking time to join us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Absolute pleasure, Greg. Thanks for having me. Keep up the good work. Well, that's it for this time. As Ross mentioned, you can visit uh, fourhorsemanfilm.com That's the word for horsemen film, all one string, to find out about the film and how to get hold of a copy or to view it online. Uh, you can also view it right here, right now, at legalizefreedom.com via the embedded link. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com.